Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. This is CGB Spender, and you're listening to X-Files Truth. The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. The truth? The truth. I got the original Defense Department's UFO intelligence files. Everything from 1940s and up. Everything. Everything. Roswell, MZ-12, and beyond. No one was supposed to know. You are prepared to accept the truth, aren't you? To sacrifice yourself to it? There was a tribe of Indians who lived here more than 600 years ago. Their name was Anasazi. It means the ancient aliens. No evidence of their fate exists. Historians say they disappeared without a trace. What do you want from me? I want the truth? They say that because they will not sacrifice themselves to the truth. And what is the truth? Where are you? I'm at the Betty Ford Center. Where are you? Hey, Enigo Ahute. Welcome back to X Files Truth. Today's file is Anasazi. X File number classified. The plot. In the desert near a Navajo Indian reservation in Two Gray Hills, New Mexico, a teenage boy comes across a boxcar buried in the ground. He retrieves the corpse of an alien-like figure from the boxcar, which he takes back to the reservation and presents it to the residents, including Navajo elder Albert Hostein. 
Shortly afterward, Kenneth Suna, a computer hacker known as The Thinker, breaks into the Defense Department database and downloads secret files related to extraterrestrial life, putting them onto a digital cassette. When the Syndicate learns of the breach, the smoking man tells them that he's already resolved the matter. The lone gunmen meet with Mulder and tell him that Suna requests to meet with him. What are you doing here? Can we talk inside? I'm not feeling well. I didn't sleep well. Really not in the mood for the Three Stooges. I don't think we've been followed. Oh, who would follow you? A multinational black ops unit. Codenamed Garnet. Trained killers. School of the Americas alumni. You boys have been defacing library books again? They don't want us. They want him. Kenneth Suna. We think that's his real name. You've heard us refer to him as the Thinker. What did he do? Hacked into the Defense Department computer system. Why? The Thinker's an anarchist and a snoop. Whatever he got into has made him a very wanted man. Customs and immigration are on full alert. Every port of egress is closed. What are you coming to me for? In his last communique, the thinker named a meeting place and a three-hour time window. He asked specifically for you. The only problem is he may already be dead. While Mulder is leaving his apartment building, he finds that one of his neighbors has shot her husband. Suna gives the digital cassette to Mulder at a discreet meeting in a park. I don't want you to know my real name. I, I just don't think it's that important that you know. Sounds like a line I used in a bar once. Look, I'm sorry about the wait, but I kind of got this ninja party shaking my butt. What? What do you got? Well, if I'm correct, I got the original Defense Department's UFO intelligence files. Everything from 1940s and up. Everything? Everything. Roswell, MJ-12, and beyond. You've read them? Not entirely. I downloaded all I could, and then I split. I mean, I knew that these guys were going to be after me. What makes you think they know who you are? I didn't take any precautions. I mean, <laughs> I didn't even expect to get inside. You know, they've always denied that these files even existed. What do you want from me? I want the truth. And I want you to promise that those rat bastards answer to the people. An excited Mulder returns to FBI headquarters, only to find that the cassette is encrypted. Scully believes that the encryption is based on the Navajo language and takes the tape in order to investigate. When Skinner calls Mulder into his office to question him about the tape, Mulder physically attacks him. Scully is brought before an FBI panel led by Skinner and is questioned about Mulder's actions. Scully is told that Mulder faces dismissal from the FBI and that she will suffer a similar punishment if she has lied to them. On Martha's Vineyard, the smoking man visits Mulder's father, Bill, and informs him of his son's likely possession of the tape. Hello, Bill. What are you doing here? I've come on some pressing business. We agreed that you would never... That was a long time ago, Bill. There have been some unforeseen events. No one was supposed to know. Who could have predicted the future, Bill? That the computers you and I only dreamed of would 
someday be home appliances capable of the most technical espionage. The files should have been destroyed. They should have, but they weren't. Regret is an inevitable consequence of life. How do you know my son has them? The man who stole them has come forward. Oh, God. As always, we maintain plausible denial. The files are only as real as their possible authentication. My name is in those files. The files have been encrypted, of course. We have a certain luxury of time. We endeavored to prevent that fact from ever coming to light. You wouldn't harm him. I've protected him this long, haven't I? Your son has been provident in the alliances that he's created. The last thing we need is a martyr or a crusade. But if he should learn of my involvement? You're your own man, Bill. You always have been. But I strongly encourage you in that event to deny everything. It's good to see you again, Bill. You look well. Scully meets with a Navajo translator who refers her to a code talker. Mulder is called away to see his father. When Scully arrives at Mulder's apartment, she's grazed by a bullet shot through the window. When Mulder arrives at his father's residence, his father prepares to reveal the truth about everything. However, Bill is shot and mortally wounded by Alex Krychek. When Mulder contacts Scully, she tells him to flee the scene. After Mulder arrives at her apartment, Scully takes his gun from him while he sleeps. Scully brings Mulder's gun to the FBI for comparison against the bullet that killed Bill. When Mulder awakens, he becomes angry and suspicious towards Scully. Later returning to Mulder's building, Scully finds his water being contaminated. When Mulder arrives home and finds Krychek there, he prepares to kill him. However, Scully shoots Mulder to prevent him from doing so. Krychek escapes. Scully brings an unconscious Mulder to New Mexico, and when he awakens, she reveals to him that his behavior was caused by a drug placed into his water supply. She introduces him to Albert Hostein, who has been translating the files on the digital cassette. Scully reveals that the cassette contains information on both her and Dwayne Barry. Hostein introduces Mulder to his grandson, who drives him to the buried boxcar. You said you knew I was coming. In the desert, things find a way to survive. Secrets are like this, too. They push their way up through the sands of deception so men can know them. Here, this is my house. Why me? You are prepared to accept the truth, aren't you? To sacrifice yourself to it? I don't understand. There was a tribe of Indians who lived here more than 600 years ago. Their name was Anasazi. It means the ancient aliens. No evidence of their fate exists. Historians say they disappeared without a trace. They say that because they will not sacrifice themselves to the truth. And what is the truth? Nothing disappears without a trace. 
You think they were abducted? By visitors who come here still. It's buried out there. Lies. You will see for yourself. Just before he heads in, he's called by the smoking man, who's able to trace Mulder's location through the call. Mulder. You're a hard man to reach. Not hard enough, apparently. Where are you? At the Betty Ford Center. Where are you? I need to talk to you, Mr. Mulder, in person. There are things to explain. I'll save the government the plane fare. I just need to know which government that is. Your father may have told you things, Mr. Mulder. I should warn you against taking those things at face value. Yeah, which things are those? He was never an opponent of the project. In fact, he authorized it. That's what he couldn't live with. No, he couldn't live with it because you had him killed. No, we weren't involved in that. Listen to me, you black lung son of a bitch. I'm going to expose you and your project. Your time is over. Expose anything and you only expose your father. Mulder heads inside the boxcar, finding a pile of dead creatures, each with smallpox vaccination scars on their arms. Scully. Yeah, it's me. Where are you? Nowhere I ever expected. What do you mean? I'm in a boxcar, buried inside a quarry. There are bodies everywhere. Bodies? Stacked floor to ceiling. What happened to them? I don't know. Mulder, in these files, I found references to experiments that were conducted here in the U.S. by Axis Power scientists who were given amnesty after the war. What kind of experiments? Some kind of tests on humans, but they're referred to as merchandise. But these aren't humans, Scully. From the look of it, I'd say they were alien. Are you sure? I'm pretty damn sure. Wait a second. This one. That's a smallpox vaccination scar. Mulder. Oh my God, Scully. What have they done? Mulder? The smoking man arrives by helicopter with armed commandos and, not finding Mulder inside, orders the boxcar to be burned. Where's Mulder? He's here. No, sir. If he was, he's vanished without a trace. Nothing vanishes without a trace. Burn it. Continued. Hand in your field report. And now for my field report for Anasazi. I love Anasazi. We get most of the main mythology characters here. CSM, the lone gunman, Skinner, Krychek, Kenasuna the thinker, Bill Mulder, and even Albert Hostein, who's one of my favorite X-Files characters of all time. And I also like the subplot of Mulder's water being poisoned and how he can't sleep and he's really burnt out. I can identify with that. Um, Anasazi is one of my favorite episodes of all time. 
maybe my very favorite of all time. I just really love this episode and how everything just kind of comes together. We get to see more how the syndicate works and the alien cover-up. And I even love how they tie in the Navajo code talkers into the main story arc. And you got to love the black helicopters too. So uh, this has so much. This episode just has so much in it. Uh, there are some other episodes coming up that are like this. But this is another one of those kind of game-changing, groundbreaking episodes. So you get a lot of uh, revelation in this one too. So uh, I could go on and on about it. But <laughs> uh, hopefully you guys like it too. Uh, for the Mythometer, obviously it's a, a mythology episode. And for the sequelizer, it's got a high potential for a sequel because it has a sequel. So... Um, my 1 to 10 rating, you can probably tell it's a 10. I just give it a 10 across the board compared to everything, all X-Files shows, all TV shows and everything. So it's just a great episode. You, you really get to see how the mythology is starting to unravel here or reveal itself. So pending any further evidence, this case, Anasazi, is filed open. So now let's go down to the chem lab and see what Agent Chelsea has for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully down in the chem lab. Agent Chelsea here. This week's episode is Anasazi, Season 2's last episode. This is a good one with lots of moments, so I'm really only going to go over my favorites with Mulder and Scully, because there's just so much to talk about. Now when Mulder gets a little cranky and starts throwing punches, who do they call in? Scully. Surely she will know, right? Scully does what she's learned is best tell them enough to get them off her back, but hold back until she talks to Mulder. Now when Mulder told her that he had trouble sleeping, she probably took him seriously, but after being called in in regards to his recent behavior, she knows something serious is going on, and it would be better to wait and see before trying to reveal anything. This meeting is short and quick, but hey, there's Chris Carter. His character kind of calls her out. He basically asks her why would Mulder confide in her when her whole purpose of being there is to tear down his work. Or at least that was their intention of assigning her there. Now my theory on why that bit was included was Chris Carter trying to show just how much Mulder and Scully's partnership has really evolved. He's kind of reminding us of how these two got started. You know, popping in and saying, Hey, uh, remember how Scully was supposed to be doing this, but instead they've become an amazing duo and partners who would look out and care for each other? Okay, back to the story. Not sure if this was his intention, but I like to think it is. Now that Scully is out of the meeting, she goes to Mulder and gets more information. After all, even though she didn't really lie, she didn't really offer up the truth either. Once again, to check with Mulder and see his side before making any decisions. 
Muller doesn't really help her, he just really demands her to keep helping him, and she does, because she knows something's up and that this is important. Now, after Mulder's father is killed, he immediately calls Scully. I think Scully knows that he would never kill his father, but I think with how he's behaving, she would believe that something might have made him do it. So, she asks who killed him, hoping to hear that it wasn't him. It wasn't, and Mulder begs her to believe that it wasn't him. Don't worry, Mulder. Scully will believe you. She's really worried about him now especially after being shot at and almost killed in his apartment. She knows someone's after him. She knows someone's trying to set him up. He goes to her place, and the second he walks in the door, he kind of falls into her arms. He's tired, he's sick, he's emotional, and probably weak. She undresses him and gets him into bed to rest. Now, knowing that Mulder isn't quite himself, Scully works at trying to prove that Mulder didn't commit the murder so he doesn't get framed for his father's death. She takes his gun to get it tested. Now Mulder doesn't quite see it that way. He refers again back to the fact that Scully wasn't supposed to be on his side. She was supposed to be his partner to take notes and report back about him. Thank goodness Scully knows that something is wrong because Mulder's a flat out jerk in this scene. She knows though that this isn't him and she investigates to see just what is causing him to act this way. She's at Mulder's place, checking out the pipes. Mulder comes home, sees someone running around the back of his place, finds Krychek, takes his gun, and is truly about ready to kill him. Does he? Nope. Scully finds them and shoots Mulder first. That's right. Scully shoots Mulder. Right in the shoulder. Scully's thinking ahead. She takes care of him and fills Mulder in when he wakes up, on basically everything that she found out. Mulder's a bit more clear-headed now, and he realizes that Scully really put herself out on the line for him, and he thanks her. Alright, that's about it for me. This was an excellent episode. I'm definitely giving it like a 4.9 out of 5 it's thrilling. There are some crazy storylines that have been introduced that keep you hooked to watch the next season. And we see Scully shoot Mulder, so that's just great. What were your thoughts on the episode? Did you enjoy the new mythology introduced? Let us know at xfilestruthatlive.com. Counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence with X 2.25 Anasazi. Original air date May 19, 1995. Written by Chris Carter, based on a story by Chris Carter and David Duchovny, and directed by R.W. Goodwin. In the desert, things find a way to survive.
There's an ancient Indian saying that something lives only as long as the last person who remembers it. My people have come to trust memory over history. Memory like fire is radiant and immutable, while history serves only those who seek to control it, those who would douse the flame of memory in order to put out the dangerous fire of truth. Beware these men, for they are dangerous themselves and unwise. Their false history is written in the blood of those who might remember, and of those who seek the truth. Anasazi has it all. Quite possibly the start of a trio of episodes that I may have watched more than all the others, Sans, The Pilot, Deep Throat, and Tunguska and Terma. We get The Thinker, Crychek, Skinner, CSM, Albert Hostein, The Lone Gunman, The Navajo Code Talkers, The Legend of the Anasazi, The MJ-12, Alien-Human Hybrids, and some great cues from Mark Snow. And this is just part one of three. The Anasazi were the ancestors of the modern Pueblo people, today about 20 communities living in New Mexico and Arizona. There is extensive literature available about the culture of modern and historic Pueblo people. There never was an Anasazi tribe, nor did anyone ever call themselves by that name. Anasazi is originally a Navajo word that archaeologists applied to people who farmed the Four Corners before 1300 AD. Archaeologists identify a culture through its artifacts, since members of a culture share traditions of architecture, crafts, symbolisms, etc. When the Anasazi or Pueblo culture began is a matter of definition because there is no single event or trait which defines it. The earliest traces of the culture date before AD 1, perhaps as early as 1500 BC, and characteristics kinds of basketry, sandals, art, tools, architecture, settlement patterns, and incipient agriculture. Modern Pueblo people dislike the name Anasazi, which they consider an ethnic slur. This Navajo word means ancient enemy, or old-timer, stranger, alien, foreigner, or outsider, although it has been common use for about 70 years. David Roberts, in his book In Search of the Old Ones, Exploring the Anasazi World of the Southwest, explained his reason for using the term Anasazi over a term using Puebloan, noting that the latter term derives from the language of an oppressor who treated the indigenes of the Southwest far more brutally than the Navajo ever did. Navajo is an obtruse language, the kind in which one word, given four different inflections, has four different meanings. The syntax is Byzantine at best, the vocabulary is rich and full and torture to memorize. Not many non-Navajo can speak it. In the early days of Navajo-European contact, white settlers tried to force the Native Americans to learn Spanish or English, depending on who was trying to steal their land. During the early part of this century, Navajo children were literally kidnapped and forced to attend government boarding schools where they were not allowed to speak their own tongue. Native languages remained unpopular with the powers that declared themselves in charge until World War II. Axis powers were breaking codes faster than the Allied cryptographers could devise them. The Japanese even had soldiers who would issue instructions to U.S. troops on U.S. Army frequencies and perfect idiomatic English. The situation was so desperate that there was an alleged Allied attempt to use Yiddish on the Italian front, knowing that any German who admitted to speaking Yiddish would be sent to a concentration camp. The American need and failure to create an unbreakable code was no secret. Even Philip Johnston, a mild-mannered civil engineer in Los Angeles, California, knew about it. Fortunately for the free world, 
he also knew Navajo. The son of a missionary, Johnston had been raised on a Navajo reserve. He spoke Navajo so fluently that at the age of nine he accompanied his father and Navajo representatives on a visit to Washington to plead for better conditions on the reservation, acting as a translator during their meetings with President Roosevelt. Johnston became convinced that Navajo, then an unwritten language which was only known by a handful of non-natives, would make the perfect basis for a code. He persuaded a nearby marine base to take up the idea, and training began with 29 Navajo boys, some as young as 15, recruited from a government boarding school. Although Navajo does include some modern words, most of those used in the Navajo code were made up from existing Navajo terms. The capital became the Tachai, the sweat house. The army was Lechai Yelniya, dog faces. The order, submarine fire torpedo, became Beshlokoloka, ironfish, fire fish shell. The final version contained over 411 words, and to spell out place names or words that haven't even been coded, several code words for each letter of the alphabet were devised. I for ice, itch or intestines. The code was so complete that Navajos not trained in it could not understand it. Navajo code talkers were expected not only to learn the code, Morse, and the use of communication equipment, but also to carry out all the duties of a normal Marine. Quite a task, especially considering that most of the men had never been off the reservation before. When we got to the Marine camp, we thought we were in a penitentiary, recalled one Navajo recruit. Another, Teddy Draper, commented on the irony of this call to duty. When I was going to boarding school, the U.S. government told us not to speak Navajo, but during the war they wanted us to speak it. When the first code talkers were finally shipped out, they were not met with the enthusiasm one would hope for. The first Navajo broadcast created panic among the ranks because the soldiers heard the unfamiliar language and thought the Japanese had taken over the airwaves. The secrecy of the venture caused even worse problems later on, with soldiers capturing and sometimes shooting at the Navajos, thinking that they were Japanese. By the end of the war, a number of the code talkers were given white bodyguards to keep them safe from friendly fire. Regardless, the code talkers were involved in every marine assault in the Pacific. The entire attack on Iwo Jima was directed in code, and in the first furious 48 hours, code talkers sent and received over 800 messages without error. Afterwards, Major Howard Connor acknowledged, were it not for the Navajo, the Marines would never have taken Iwo Jima. By the end of World War II, there were over 400 code talkers and a total of 3,600 Navajo men and women in the armed services. But despite its distinction as one of the few unbroken codes in the history of warfare, the code talker program ended with the war. Officialdom seemed to think there would be no more war, reflected Philip Johnston. The code was allowed to die. However, many of the code talkers went on to important positions in the Navajo community, and one, Peter MacDonald, even became tribal chairman. Majestic 12, or MJ-12, is the supposed code name of an alleged secret committee of scientists, military leaders, and government officials formed in 1947 by an executive order by U.S. President Harry S. Truman. The purpose of the committee would be to investigate the recovery of a UFO north of Roswell, New Mexico during July of 1947. Initial indications of such a group's existence appeared in a 1978 declassified Canadian document. 
Another reference to a classified group called MJ-12 was discovered in 1980, but was later claimed to be a hoax. In 1984, a set of documents were discovered in the United States archives which closely resemble real declassified documents, but which the FBI have declared to be completely bogus. UFO conspiracy theories sometimes incorporate Majestic 12. The earliest appearance of the term MJ-12 was a message of unclear origin dated November 17, 1980. The so-called Project Aquarius teletype message had been given to Albuquerque physicist and businessman Paul Benowitz in November of 1980 by U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations Counterintelligence Officer Richard C. Doty. Benowitz had photographed and recorded electronic data of which he believed to be UFO activity over nearby Kirtland Air Force Base, a sensitive nuclear facility. Benowitz reported his findings to officials at Kirtland, including Doty. In 1989, the ufologist Bill Moore claimed that the documents were actually a hoax created by Doty as part of an attempt to drive Benowitz insane. One sentence in the lengthy teletype message read, quote, The official U.S. government policy and results of Project Aquarius is still classified top secret with no dissemination outside channels and with access restricted to MJ-12. In 1983, Dottie also contacted UFO researcher and journalist Linda Moulton Howe, revealing alleged high-level UFO documents, including those describing crashed alien flying saucers and recovery of aliens. Dottie again mentioned MJ-12, explaining that MJ stood for majority, not majestic. Because the entire MJ-12 affair made its first appearance only a year after Bray had made public the incriminating Canadian documents about the secret UFO committee, one theory is that the Project Aquarius teletype message was part of a counterintelligence hoax to discredit the information in the just-revealed Canadian documents. Thus, the various MJ-12 documents could be fake, but the secret committee described in the verified Canadian documents could still have been real. In 1982, Moore approached nuclear physicist and UFO researcher Stanton T. Friedman about creating bogus Roswell documents with the idea of encouraging witnesses to come forward. Noted UFO skeptic Philip J. Klass also argued that Moore was the most likely hoaxer of the initial batch of MJ-12 documents. Moore, however, flatly denied creating the documents, but eventually thought that maybe he had been set up. Unlike Pratt, who was convinced they were a hoax, Friedman would investigate the historical and technical details in the MJ-12 documents and become their staunchest defender. What came to be known as the MJ-12 Papers, detailing a secret UFO committee allegedly involving Vannevar Bush, first appeared on a roll of film in late 1984 in the mailbox of television documentary producer and amateur UFOologist Jamie Shandera. Shandera had been collaborating with Bill Moore since 1980. Moore said in 1989 that these documents were also a hoax created by Doty. Furthermore, the film mailed to Shandera with the MJ-12 documents was postmarked Albuquerque, raising the obvious suspicion that the MJ-12 documents were more bogus documents arising from Doty and AFOSI in Albuquerque. The film, allegedly received by Shandera in 1984, consisted of two MJ-12 documents. The main document, dated November 18, 1952, was supposedly prepared by Rear Admiral Roscoe Hillencoter, the first CIA director, to brief incoming President Dwight Eisenhower on the committee's progress. The document lists all the MJ-12 members and discusses United States Air Force investigations and concealment of a crashed alien spacecraft near Roswell, New Mexico, plus another crash in northern Mexico in December of 1950. 
All the alleged original members of MJ-12 were notable for their military, government, and or scientific achievements, and were all deceased when the documents first surfaced. The last to die was Jerome Hunsaker only a few months before the MJ-12 papers first appeared. The original composition was six civilians, mostly scientists, and six high-ranking military officers, two from each major military service. Three had been the first three heads of Central Intelligence, Sowers, Vandenberg, and Hillenkoter. The more Shandera documents did not make clear who was the director of MJ-12 or if there was any organizational hierarchy. The named members of MJ-12 were Rear Admiral Roscoe H. and Hillenkoter, Dr. Vannevar Bush, James Forstel, General Nathan Twain, General Hoyt Vandenberg, General Robert Montague, Dr. Jerome Hunsaker, Rear Admiral Sidney Sowers, Gordon Gray, Dr. Donald Menzel, Dr. Detlev Bronk, and Dr. Lloyd Berker. There are arguments that exist both for and against the MJ-12 documents. But regardless of your actual belief in the truth or untruth of those papers, the fact of the matter remains is that there are indeed secret national intelligence documents and cover-ups pertaining to reliably documented UFO activities by purported MJ-12 members. Other MJ-12 papers that would later emerge, according to additional sources, famous scientists like Robert Oppenheimer, Albert Einstein, Carl Compton, Edward Teller, John von Neumann, and Werner von Braun were also allegedly involved with MJ-12. I encourage everyone to find out more and do your own research to uncover your own truths about what the government isn't telling us. For myself, I'm a believer in possibilities, and with that, I'd say that this case is wide open. So the final word on Anasazi, nothing disappears without a trace. What's out there for Anasazi? Well, I've got two reviews from my favorite blogs for you today because this is the last episode of season two. The first one comes from Agent Summer's blog, My Truth. The second season allowed the show to take full shape with the mythology maturing to the form that carries us through much of the rest of the show. As a whole, the second season is much stronger than the first, gaining more viewers with wonderful and groundbreaking storytelling. It's with this momentum that we close this memorable season with the high of an unforgettable myth arc. Anasazi is constantly moving. It starts off with an earthquake revealing something strange buried in the earth. Searching the area, a young man discovers strange remains back to his home and is told it should be returned. They will be coming. What exactly happened to the remains and who is coming remains a mystery, but it's just enough to pique your curiosity. Over the first season, we watched Mulder and Scully build up unshakable trust. 
By the start of the second season, Little Green Men, we hear Mulder saying of Scully, Before I could only trust myself, now I can only trust you. Mulder's treatment of his once trusted above all others partner is uncharacteristic in this episode, and has to have been an emotional roller coaster for Scully. At a time when most of us would have walked away, Scully knows her partner well enough to know something is clearly wrong with him. In the face of adversity, Scully gives him the benefit of the doubt and remains true to Mulder. She brushes off being grazed by a sniper's bullet that may have well been meant for Mulder and puts her job on the line for him by hiding from her superiors at the FBI that her partner has sensitive information. It's not an easy journey Scully takes in this episode, but it's a testament to her character that she doesn't waver in support of Mulder. Alright, now I really like what she had to say about uh, Scully's unshakable trust in Mulder. And, you know, like, I feel like most of us would honestly just be like, alright, forget it, Mulder, whatever. But, uh, when, when someone's mean to Scully, apparently she doesn't think, oh, well, you're a jerk, I'm gonna leave now. She's like, oh, something clearly must be wrong with you. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, she just knows Mulder well enough to know that something's up. And, you know, something's clearly wrong with him, and... She really helps him out a lot in this episode. Alright, and the next review comes from Musings of an X-File. This whole episode is about taking the X-Files over the top. Not only does David Duchovny finally get to play Mulder to the hilt, it's confirmed that the conspiracy isn't confined to the military or even to the federal government for that matter. It's multinational. Well, it involves the Axis powers, and the United States anyway, You'll notice no one invited Russia. This episode is about My Girl Scully. We've seen her take the lead in an investigation before, notably in Beyond the Sea and less memorably in Excelsius Day, but never like this. As Mulder falls apart, she's shown at her best, brave, loyal, and smart. It sounds... It sounds like I'm exaggerating, but Mulder really does nothing in this episode except rapidly degenerate. In terms of the plot, he's completely passive. Everything happens to him. He's given a disc, he's fed spiked water, he's robbed of his father, he's shot, he's taken to a quarry, he's firebombed. Notice the trend? Scully quarterbacks this episode and solves the case as much as it can be solved in the first part of a three-part story arc without Mulder's help. And she saves Mulder to boot. Chris Carter and company keep raising the mythology stakes even higher. If we thought that Erlenmeyer flask was new ground for Mulder and Scully, just look at what's at risk for them here. Now Mulder's family isn't just a casualty of the conspiracy. His father himself was a perpetrator. Rating A. Now, obviously, I just love this review because it's hilarious, and it's talking about a pretty serious episode. <laughs> um... But once again, I love that, you know, props are given to Scully because this episode is very, very focused on Mulder. And, I mean, rightfully so. Everything is really happening to him and everyone's trying to put him down. Um, but I think it's it's good to recognize that, you know, while all of this is going on, Scully is really the one holding everything together. Um, I mean... I don't think uh, this review was intent to 
kind of put Mulder down. I think just in a way, it it's just saying, like, you know, everything was happening to him. Like, he couldn't really... He couldn't really do anything because all these things were happening to him. At least that's what I interpreted from it. All right, that's what's out there for Anasazi. Character Profiles Profiles in Character This week's profile, Albert Hosteen, as portrayed by Floyd Westerman. Albert Hosteen was a Navajo codebreaker first appearing in our featured episode, Anasazi, and its follow-up episodes, Paperclip and The Blessing Way. In the desert near a Navajo Indian reservation in Two Gray Hills, New Mexico, a teenage boy comes across a boxcar buried in the ground. He retrieves the corpse of an alien-like figure from the boxcar, which he takes back to the reservation and presents it to the residents, including Navajo elder Albert Hosteen. He is presented as a surviving member of the original team of Navajo code talkers from World War II. Scully believes the encryption on the digital tape obtained by Mulder is based on the Navajo language and takes the tape in order to investigate. Scully sought out Hostine's help to translate the encrypted files in the digital disk. Scully brings Mulder to New Mexico and introduces him to Hostine, who has been translating the files. Albert introduces Mulder to his grandson, who leads Mulder to the buried boxcar full of the corpses of human-alien hybrids. In the Blessing Way, in Two Gray Hills, New Mexico, Albert Hostine and his family are beaten by the men in black as they search for the whereabouts of Fox Mulder. Dana Scully is pursued by a black helicopter before soldiers retrieve her printed copies of Albert's translations of the digital cassette. Mulder, alive but severely wounded, is found buried under some rocks near the buried boxcar. Hostine has Mulder taken to a Navajo sweat lodge to be healed during a Blessing Way ritual led by Albert. Mulder, recovered from the Blessing Way chant, is told by Albert that he cannot bathe or change clothes for four days. Hostine saved Mulder's life after he nearly died in the boxcar after an attack by the men in black. Soon after, he traveled to Washington, D.C., where he prayed over Melissa Scully in the hospital. Hostine is last seen at FBI headquarters with Skinner, who once again meets with the cigarette smoking man about the tape. The smoking man calls Skinner's bluff, knowing he no longer has the tape, but Skinner reveals that Albert and 20 other Navajos have memorized the content of the tape and are ready to reveal it if Mulder or Scully are harmed. Albert Hostine will be seen in future seasons in the episodes Biogenesis, The Sixth Extinction 2, Amor Fate and Enami. Years later, Hostine returned when he once again was called to translate something. This time, it was alien writing from an artifact found on the Ivory Coast. Hostine was later taken to a New Mexico hospital due to an unexplained illness with his doctors fearing the worst. 
Hastine died after spending two weeks in a coma, but before he did, Hastine's spirit appeared to Scully several times in her apartment, imploring her to find and save her missing partner before syndicate scientists could remove and study the immunity he has to the alien virus inside of him, using it in their plans for surviving colonization. Hostine subtly guided her to Mulder's location, encouraging a more spiritual route. Hostine and Scully prayed for Mulder. The next morning he vanished, having died the night before. Floyd Red Crow Westerman was born August 17, 1936, at the Lake Traverse Indian Reservation in Roberts County, South Dakota, and died December 13, 2007 in Los Angeles. Red Crow was a renowned American Dakota Sioux Indian activist, singer, songwriter, and actor. He made his big screen debut in Renegades in 1989, and is best remembered for his role as the elder and leader Tin Bear in Dances with Wolves from 1990. He can also be seen in movies like The Doors, The Brave, and Hidalgo, and TV shows like The X-Files, Millennium, Walker, Texas Ranger, and Dharma and Greg, among others. His songs like Custer Died for Your Sins and BIA Blues have helped spread the American Indian movement's message throughout the world. He has had featured roles in Northern Exposure, L.A. Law, and many other television series and movies. And he performs with countless musicians including Willie Nelson, Bonnie Raitt, and Don Henley in large benefit concerts for Indian self-determination, human rights, and environmental protection. He toured the world with Sting to publicize the plight of the rainforest people who are dying along with the rainforest and as caretakers must be protected if the rainforests are to go on providing for all life on Earth. He has been an ambassador of goodwill representing the International Indian Treaty Council from the time of its inception. How many times have we been here before, Summer? Right here. So close to the shipper truth about Mulder and Scully. And now with what we've seen in Season 2, to be right back at the beginning with nothing. This is different, Chelsea. No, it isn't. You were right to want to quit. You were right to want to leave me. You should get as far away from me as you can. I'm not going to let you watch Mulder and Scully's unsolved sexual tension and let it lead to nothing. Go. Go watch another show while you still can. I can't. I won't. Chelsea, I'll be a shipper for Mulder and Scully no matter what. And my work is here with you now. The second season we were exposed to, all that happened, it's only moved Mulder and Scully closer. How many other shippers will get discouraged and give up? Look, if we quit now, the no Romos win. We must show the shippers there is a reason to keep watching. You're right. We can't quit now. Let's put together our list of top shipper moments for the second season, because maybe there's still hope. We can't give up as long as the truth is still out there. I'll meet you back here in two weeks and hope all the other shippers will join us for our second annual Shippers Special. Have you checked your email? 
found these in my email this morning. And now, the female with the emails, Agent Chelsea. All right, everyone. As always, you can send us your thoughts through many different ways. First way is through our email, xfilestruth at live.com. This week, we got two emails. I'll read... I'll go ahead and read the first one. Hi, agents. Enjoyed your latest podcast on Our Town. Personally, I'm somewhere between Shadow and Chelsea's opinion of the episode. While I enjoyed the episode, don't think I'd place this one on a list of favorites like Chelsea. Although, as Shadow said, it had potential for a sequel. I'm glad they didn't go that route either. I don't know how they could have topped this episode with a similar theme and characters. Really looking forward to watching Anastasia again. That episode was awesome and adds some great elements to the myth arc. Keep on doing what you're doing. I really appreciate hearing your takes and reliving the episodes with you. Lil. Thank you, Lil. Um, so glad to hear from you. And I think that's kind of cool that you're like right in between. Um, I know Shadow and I sometimes will uh, completely agree with each other and sometimes we're totally opposite. So it kind of gives people um, an opportunity to relate to relate to us in a way because some people, you know, don't like the episodes that everyone likes or do like the episodes that people don't like. Um, so I think that kind of makes it fun. And I hope you enjoyed Anasazi and enjoyed this episode as well. Next email. Hi guys, congratulations on finishing the second season. Can you believe 2012 is almost over? And thank you for all your hard work on the podcast. I hope you take a well-earned break before starting Season 3. You can also pass on my thanks to Agent Stone, as I'm enjoying his segment more and more. I took eight of your Season 1 podcasts on my holiday. This made the long drives more bearable. Regarding more recent episodes, Ephemasculata obviously wins points for being rather yucky. I don't have a particularly strong memory of Softlight or X being in it, so I'll have to revisit it. Humbug's obviously good fun for a number of reasons, such as the scene between Mulder and the hotel manager. The Kalushari probably freaked me out a little when I was 12 or 13, as I hadn't seen any exorcisms on TV when I watched it. Now, of course, it's commonplace to see this type of thing. In our town, you referred to or read a review that mentioned Scully as being a damsel in distress. Am I the only one who winces slightly at this term? Granted, Scully's life was in danger at a number of points throughout the series, but do we, TV fans and critics, automatically use the term when a female character is in these situations? Mulder got his behind kicked plenty of times, too. I haven't thought this through in full. It stood out to me in the podcast, though. Enjoy Anasazi. It's quite the episode. Keep up the good work and stay well. All the best, Barry in Ireland. Thank you so much, Barry, and so glad you've been enjoying the podcast on your long drives. I know that makes it um, kind of bearable to get through. And uh, Agent Stone, did you hear his compliment? There you go, buddy. Uh, <laughs> and as for the comment on Damsel of Distress... I completely agree with you, Barry, 100%. I think I think it's a term that kind of just doesn't need to be used anymore. And 
I, I, you know, I made kind of a very similar point that, you know, Mulder gets, uh, stuck in situations too. We don't call him a, a dude in distress. I mean, I don't even know. I, um, I don't know. It probably just because she's a female character and so people link that. But yeah, I, I do think that we need to be equal with Mulder and Scully because they are equals. So thank you too for sending us emails. Everyone else can also send us emails and similar thoughts like this. We love hearing your personal opinions on certain episodes. Um, you can also send us feedback on Facebook. Search X-Files Truth, like our page, and post on our timeline. Either questions or your thoughts on an episode or just your thoughts on the podcast in general. Uh, you can also write us an iTunes review and give us a rating out of five stars. That really helps us um, get, well, get well known and kind of puts us at the top of the list so when people search X-Files, they'll see our podcast. Also, you can leave comments at our website and check out our website to see links of everything we've mentioned in the show, including the songs, which is xfilestruth.com. Feel free to check it out, guys, and we look forward to hearing from you. Next season on X-Files Truth. While Mulder undergoes a traditional life-saving Navajo Blessing Way ceremony, Scully is suspended from the Bureau and tracked by the Syndicate Cigarette Smoking Man and the Well-Manicured Man, both trying to gain possession of the missing Defense Department DAT tape. X-Files DNA. The end theme that I injected with X-Files DNA today is Teo Tiwakan from Noel Gallagher. And that of course is the end theme for the Fight the Future movie. And that's the last end theme for Season 2. I'm not sure what I'll do for Season 3 if I'll continue doing uh, different songs for the end themes and injecting them with X-Files clips or if I'll just have one main uh, end theme. I might leave that up to you guys, uh, depending on the feedback that we get. Maybe I'll put a poll up on the website at xfilestruth.com, something like that. Not sure what I'll do yet. It's just a lot of extra work, but I love doing it, so it's fun. Well, it's been a long time coming, but we've made it through two seasons, and it has been a blast. I really want to thank Agent Chelsea, Agent Stone, Agent M, and Agent Summer for all the work they've done these 
uh, two years. You guys are great. I couldn't uh, continue a show like this without all the work you guys do. I remember almost exactly two years ago when I asked Chelsea to join me on this nine-season journey, and she was totally in. We didn't know exactly how the show would go, but we knew it had to be done. Then we got lucky when I asked some frequent emailers from the show and from uh, my Snow Tracks podcast if they wanted to join us. And that's how we got Summer and Stone and Agent M. And they've made huge contributions to the show and to the X-Files community. And I'd also like to thank Agent Donald from Reopening the X-Files. Thank you, Donald. Uh, He started me in the podcasting world. He asked me to do a segment on his show, and that helped me learn a lot of the stuff that I need to produce a big project like X-Files Truth. And lastly, I want to thank all of you guys who sent emails, tweets, feedback, and especially reviews at iTunes. Those help the most. Uh, You guys are who we did this for, the diehard files. We will be returning for Season 3 starting the first weekend in January of 2014, but we still have a few things for you all. First, remember the Shipper Special in two weeks. That's going to be very cool. Then, uh, remember the end of the world date in the Mayan calendar? It's also the date in the X-Files that's set for the alien invasion. Well, almost. The Mayan date is December 21st, 2012. The X-Files mention it as being December 22nd. But either way, something will happen the night of the 21st, Friday night at midnight, going into Saturday, the 22nd. So if you're awake that Friday night, Saturday morning, then go to xfilestruth.com and refresh your browser at midnight to see what happens. Many years ago, the X-Files promised something on December 22nd, 2012, and in one month, something will happen. We'll have the countdown at the site, uh, xfilestruth.com, along with the usual stuff for the episode, plus the Shipper Show info. So I think that's everything. Thanks again for listening. God bless, and remember, the truth is out there. I'm not feeling well. I didn't sleep well. Really not in the mood for the Three Stooges. Why me? You are prepared to accept the truth, aren't you? To sacrifice yourself to it? I don't understand. I don't want you to know my real name. I, I just don't think it's that important that you know. Sounds like a line I used in a bar one. There was a tribe of Indians who lived here more than 600 years ago. Their name was Anasazi. It means ancient aliens. No one is supposed to.
future, bro. No evidence of your fate exists. Historians say they disappear without a trace. Jordan. Oh, man. I protected them this long, haven't I? They say that because they will not sacrifice themselves to the truth. What is the truth? Maybe you open the door for them. They're just looking for a good reason. You think they were abducted? My visitors who come here still. The question is, is it worth it? Is this cassette worth risking everything? It's buried out there. Hi. You will see for yourself. I made this. 20th century. Fox.